This morning I want to continue the theme that I've been exploring the last few times, which is things are not as they appear. And this is actually the fifth uh, talk and exploration on the theme, things are not as they appear. Typically I give also each time some practices that you can do. Uh, And I think I'm going to do one more in the series. I'll do that in two weeks. Uh, Sylvia will be here next week. I'll be here in two weeks. And I'll give practices in the course of the talk that you can do and then come back and we uh, compare notes. I'll do a brief review of what we've done up till now because a number of you have not been here for all the sessions. So I'll give a review to give a kind of update. The whole theme follows from the basic way uh, that in the Buddhist tradition, the process of spiritual development is presented. It's presented through the metaphor of awakening. We awaken. Remember that the the Buddha's very name or the, the title, the Buddha, refers to being awake. And so the suggestion is, is that our habitual way of being in the world before awakening is like being asleep. Which can be a, a little bit shocking, right? Or even perplexing. You know, it's one thing to understand the uh, process more positively, like I develop in love and wisdom and compassion and so forth. That's, we can understand that as something gradual, but there's also this claim that we undergo a really significant shift and we move from being caught in a state that's like being asleep. And this is uh, understood in a variety of ways. The core condition of uh, human beings is understood to be connected with having very significant ignorance. Now, it's not ignorance about facts or particular knowledge, but it's a kind of spiritual ignorance about the very way that things are. And the suggestion is that we are very caught up, essentially, in self-centered behavior, which not only can lead to suffering, but also reflects a lack of uh, clear seeing about the world and about us. So again, it's a, it's a strong uh, statement. And I presented, I've pre- presented this uh, understanding, things are not as they appear, through a progression where we started with several ways of, of uh, understanding how things are not as they appear that are pretty accessible to us. And then we're increasingly going towards more subtle dimensions of understanding how things are not as they appear. So we started with the first way of understanding this this, uh, theme 
by seeing how we often see through the lens of the personal self. You know, that if I have a feud with someone, I'm going to pick up on all the bad things the person does and not see any of the good ones. You know, we know that. That's very ordinary understanding. Although I guess that not everyone knows that. <laughs> right? It's helpful to know, right? It's helpful to know that if I'm really having a conflict with someone, I will tend to see that person negatively, not see the positive and so forth. It's very, very common. Uh, and we can do that in relation to ourselves as well. Someone gives me, you know, if I'm very sensitive to self-criticism, you know, I can hear one word of self-criticism and ignore 50 words that say nice things, right? That we know that we can have uh, tendencies in which we don't see clearly. You know, and that, again, not everyone can see that uh, accurately, but that understanding is not so hard to see. And, you know, uh, several weeks ago when we were exploring this, I asked people to study it and come back with examples. There were a lot of really interesting and almost fun examples of people noticing uh, these things. And I mentioned last week the famous saying from India, when a thief meets a saint, all the thief sees are the saint's pockets. (laughs) Which again means we see very often through the lens of self in ways that constrict our vision, we don't see certain things, we focus on some things and so forth. And that that's it's kind of kind of normal. Um, you know, I remember and, and just to actually come to some agreed upon sense of what we see, it's not always easy. I, I remember one time that I had a members of a couple came asked me to work with them and they were having couple conflicts and so forth. And so I asked them about it and I asked one person, can you just describe a typical conflict that might involve or one conflict? And the person described and the other person say, no, that's not it at all. <laughs> Again, it's very familiar, you know. And, and, uh, and then the, the second person described the conflict and the first person said, no, that's not it at all. <laughs> Right? And again, pretty familiar. And in that particular session, we took 90 minutes in order to arrive at one sentence that both of them could agree on about the conflict. It took 90 minutes. 90 minutes of, you know, negotiation, right? right? And so again, we can, we can see that. We can notice. And so the practices that I gave people for for that particular week after that theme was introduced was to just look at that. Notice how you may do that at times and bring back stories, but keep on looking. And that's still a very important practice because again, there are easier to see ways that we do this. There are also subtle ways, a lot of pretty subtle ways. And, you know, in uh, in some dimensions, that seeing of how we influence what we see because of our interests, our likes and dislikes and so forth is easy to see. There are also subtle aspects that are not so easy to see. So we looked at that. That was the first theme that we, we don't see. We think things are not as they appear because we so often look through the lens of self, right? The second theme was that we also look through the lens of our social conditioning. 
And again, some aspects of that are easy to see and some things are harder, right? And so we talked about different aspects of that. Of course, one way simply is that different cultures have different language, uh, have different words, different interests, different concepts. And we, you know, we, we can look at things and different, different ethical values and so forth. And we see through the lens of our culture. That's sort of a commonplace, not so hard to see, you know. Um, Eskimos, it's said, have 40 words for snow. They see all the differentiations in snow. We see snow. <laughs> we see one phenomenon called snow, right? And so you could point to a lot of examples of that. And, um, you know, in a way that's a little bit less innocent, uh, of course, uh, governments always like to frame things in certain ways and not have us see certain things, right? And so uh, a lot of governments uh, often uh, don't like journalists because they go against the uh, ruling narrative, right? And so right now in a lot of countries, being a journalist is to be at risk, right? Countries like uh, Russia or Mexico, and we probably could list 50 other countries, right? Uh, There are ways that um, uh, certain people with power, whether it's the government or, you know, or uh, drug cartels or whatever, they do not like certain information to be present because it goes against the narrative. They want people to see through a certain narrative, you know, and um, just something that I, I, I read this morning uh, related to this, you know, some of you know that I, most of you know probably that I, I taught in Israel last summer and also visited the Palestinian territory several times. And uh, tomorrow is actually the 70th anniversary of the uh, founding of Israel. And there's actually a law that was passed in 2011 that uh, uh, said that any institution in Israel which mentions on the date of the Israeli independence the fact that there were things happening also to the Palestinians uh, can be financially penalized. Right? That's, you know, again, they want a certain narrative to be the lens through which people see. Very common with governments. Of course, our present administration is uh, almost declared a war on journalists, right? So this is in order to uh, have the frame they want, right? And so, again, it's not like we don't do that either. We do it, you know, according to that first aspect, uh, we do that as well. But the second theme is that we see through the lens of of, uh, social conditioning. And there are certain things we see and certain things that we don't see. And, uh, you know, we mentioned in the times that we've looked at this also how we, of course, see through the lens of social conditioning around gender and race and age and ethnicity and all sorts of things. You know, some of this more innocent, some of it less innocent, right? And we, we know that. And so part of the work is to investigate, see one's own conditioning, not to take... Uh, one's own way of seeing for granted, right? And some of that is easier to see 
and some of it's harder to see. Right? We, we've, we've looked into that. The third theme was, again, we're getting a little more subtle, although some aspects are, are not so hard to see. The third uh, theme or the third aspect of the theme, things are not as they appear, had to do with the fact that we tend to see things as being more permanent and solid than they really are. Some of this comes through the influence of language, you know, but it's also connected with vision. And I think I'll say just a little bit now because I'm going to bring this up later when I talk about the theme for, for today. But the, you know, that we somehow, you know, on many, many levels, assume that things are more permanent than they are. Uh, whether it's us, you know, I, I, I mention often that I sometimes ask people uh, in groups, how many of you will die? I never get more than 50% raising their hands. <laughs> I'm not going to do that here. <laughs> right? But 50% raised, you know, up to 50% raise their hands. So what's that about? <laughs> right? And so we can, we can see that. We can um, see how we tend to look at the world and see things as more permanent. And again, I'll bring, the, bring up some of the details of that, of that later. And so some of the practices, similar to what we did this morning in the guided meditations, help us to look into the reality of change. And I mentioned, I think, in those, uh, on those days that looking into impermanence is really taken as key in Buddhist practice. And it's a very major theme. Uh, one of the three, are, three uh, areas that we're invited to look at that are particularly important for freedom and liberation. It's taken that we really don't see uh, things accurately because we're caught by impermanence. And I'll mention later how some of that comes just through the normal operations of our mind, in, of our ordinary minds, I should say. And again, in meditation, we can explore this. And so we can explore impermanence both by reflecting about how things change in a very ordinary way. You know, I change, I, I arise and pass away, Trees arise and pass away. Governments arise and pass away. And just to reflect on that in an ordinary way is one of the reflections that's often done in meditative traditions, just to familiarize oneself with that. I did that once for about two years, just 10 minutes a day, very ordinary, you know. You know, just like I said, you know, this arises and pass away. Those near and dear to me arise and pass away the success of the local basketball professional team arises and passes away. <laughs> right? And so forth, right? Uh, how long things stay, it's different, right? But uh, they're impermanent. And so we can also do that in a meditative way. We can explore, much as we did in the guided meditation, just how things are changing. We could do things with the sound, right? You could hear the sound of this particular bell with a lot of a lot of changes, right? A lot of changes in the sound. And we could actually stay with that. And it can be a very beautiful meditation just to be with uh, any of the senses, actually, sound or body sensations, sometimes taste with food, and just hang out and watch change. And we mentioned last time I was here how, I forget who who was speaking, but 
um, I think, how being actually just with the flow of phenomena uh, for this person brought about joy. Just to sit back and watch. Amazing, right? Be with a river and just watch the river going. Or we'll be with the sounds of you know, rain or something and just watch the changes. It can be very, uh, very beautiful. And so we worked, we worked with that. Um, and then last time, I brought up the, uh, a fourth aspect of the theme of things are not as they appear, which is that uh, we tend to take ourselves and other beings as solid, permanent, and independent when they are not so. And I mentioned also that we tend to take external phenomena as independent, solid, and so forth when they are not so, which is related to the impermanent theme, impermanence theme. So last time I particularly focused on the um, on uh, individuals and the sense of sense of self and how um, with uh, ourselves we tend to assume a certain kind of permanence and solidity of ourselves but when we look carefully we don't really find that. We find that we are changing, that we're not as solid as we think, that everything's changing, that, um, that in a sense, the sense of self is a kind of construction. And I'll t- talk more about that. The practices that I gave last time to explore, and this is a, conceptually, this is a mysterious and difficult part of Buddhist teaching. It's a teaching called not-self or anatta, which I've taught on, um, sometimes given series on that theme here. Uh, but it's one of the most conceptually confusing uh, teachings that there is. And so I try to simplify it by saying we can really explore that nature of self in two ways and explore this, t- this teaching is that there's not a self in the usual way we think there is. That the self is much more changing, relative, and constructed. We tend to think there's this permanent underlying core of our being. And the Buddhist emphasis challenges that. And there are two ways to explore this practically. And my suggestion was not to think about it too much, but to explore it practically. And the two ways of doing that were first to just to explore experiences where there's more of a sense of flow. And that's what we did in the guided meditations. We had a sense of oh, now there's one thing, now there's another thing. And that was actually the main way that the Buddha taught on this theme. He said, look at experience and see if you can actually pay attention to the constituents of experience. And he identified the main constituents according to the model of what's called the aggregates or the skandhas. And those were aspects like body sensations or form, um, a sense of liking or disliking, uh, thoughts and emotions and so forth. And um, in the guided meditations, I would simply very much like what we did, just have, he might have people follow. Can you just be with experience? The mind has to be somewhat quiet to do this and just notice 
body sensations. Oh, there's some body sensations are prominent now. Oh, there's a sound. Oh, there's a taste or a smell. Oh, a thought just came by. Oh, an emotion just came by. And when we explore this in meditation, the way to open up this teaching is by um, seeing that it's possible to just be with the flow of the constituents of experience and that a sense of self is kind of an add-on. It may come from liking or disliking or from our thinking. You know, but a lot of the way that one works with the sense of self in Buddhist tradition is one just as with the flow of a kind of raw experience and then you ask, where is the self? Something like that also happened in the Western tradition in the, in the movement of Western philosophy. Something very similar happened in the 18th century with the philosopher David Hume. He said, people talk about a self, but I can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> right, and so the meditative practice would be see if you can be just with the constituents of experience and watch where the sense of self comes up and it basically comes up as an idea I like this, I don't like this uh, here's a plan that I could have for later today so not to accept what I'm saying you know, as it were on faith but look for oneself that's really always the practice look for oneself And the finding is that when we look carefully, we don't really find a self. We find a self more as commentary or suggestions. Oh, I should do this, right? But you can actually have long periods of time just being with the constituents of experience with very little sense of self. Last time I was here, I also connected that with more ordinary experiences in which we're simply with the flow of experience with very little sense of self. I suggested that those kind of experiences are some of our most precious experiences in life. Such as when we're really connected to the earth or to the sunset or to the mountains. You know, I had this really amazing experience three days ago. I was just after teaching in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I went to Henry Cal Redwood State Park. Anyone been there? Go there. <laughs> really amazing old growth redwoods. You know, 15 feet in diameter and you know could I be with uh, you know, I think can I be with the redwoods without a lot of thinking we probably find that when that happens sometimes some of our most precious experiences open up or being with someone we love whom we love you know the most precious experiences are when the thinking drops away the sense of self drops away and there's just connection same thing occurs in music or art, maybe dance, right? When we just uh, give ourselves up to the music, you know. I often tell uh, the little poem that my mother gave me once because she was a musician and um, she described being asked to do a piano recital at age uh, seven and she was really self-conscious. And her music teacher said, just don't think of yourself. And she said, okay. (laughs) And so she just, I don't know, she just was able to somehow play the music, do the recital. And she said, I just won't think of myself. Okay. (laughs) And she did it, right? And later she said, that's the way it has to be when you're a musician. 
let yourself be taken away by the music, right? And so again, uh, we can study. And I gave also the example of sports. Very the, in sports, this is called playing in the zone. When one is, and you know, when uh, athletes describe being in the zone, they describe extraordinary experiences. Again, their most precious experience as athletes, probably in their lives, came from when there was almost no sense of self. And we can do this in an ordinary way. Can we do the dishes and just be with the flow of the experience? I think most of us do this more than we think. When we do like a job that we're really familiar with, there may not be a lot of thinking if we're really engrossed in the work. Right? So for me, this is a very everyday form of this teaching that things are not quite as they appear in terms of the self being not as solid and um, independent as we think, right? So these are the ways to explore it, uh, partly through meditation, partly through ordinary experiences. And the other way we explore it is to see where the self gets what I call really thick, you know, where we have a very strong sense of self and then we have to explore it. So the two ways of exploring uh, the self are by, or at least that are, are there in my simplification of practice, is see if you can open to a sense more of the flow of phenomena, number one, and then look for where the self gets, gets thick. It might be thick because I get really reactive, upset, I really like something or disliking, I get really caught in self-centered thinking. Again, none of these are per se bad or wrong, but it's really good to notice that this is, they're happening. Or when, you know, it could be where I have like a part of my being is wounded, you know, and maybe I'm really sensitive to criticism. So when I get criticism, it's like the armor comes up, right? You know, and so if there's a wound, the direction of our practice would be to heal the wound. Wouldn't be to try to transcend it. That would not be skillful, right? So sometimes when we look at where the self is thick, we see something calling out for healing or for transformation. And that's important. It's an important qualification to all this. So the area that I want to explore today for the rest of the morning is how this is the same thing with phenomena. That things are not as they appear in terms of the phenomena of the world, what we call chairs, trees, people, meditation cushions, bells, coats, jackets on statues. <laughs> this was a especially compassionate being over to my left who, as was pointed out earlier, um, is taking a stance of compassion in, in relation to cell phone use. Can you see? Can you see this? Be, come over and take a look. This is a being who is checking the cell phone. <laughs> okay. So we normally take there to be separate objects that are more or less permanent, that are independent. In our ordinary minds, this is what we see. Doesn't that seem normal? So here it is, I'm telling you, things are not as they appear. And I want to come at this from a few perspectives because it's increasingly uh, brought out, not only if you do Buddhist practice, but also if you read 
contemporary psychology, philosophy, neuroscience, or sociology. They're more or less saying the same thing. It's interesting, right? They're more or less saying that we live in a constructed world. That the world and we ourselves are constructed. How does that feel? Me? I'm me. But again, the, the invitation is to look carefully. So in past, past sessions, I've brought out a little bit of the work coming from these different contemporary areas. So we, we've looked some at how the brain likes to have uh, a very simple, ordinary world to navigate. The brain doesn't like to spend a lot of time just hanging out with impermanence. It can get used to it. It's okay. But it likes, it likes a simple, ordered world. And it works through all sorts of uh, models and metaphors, a lot of which are culturally determined, uh, to, in order to come up with a world that it sees. It likes something that's simple. It doesn't like to look at a tree and tune into how things are always changing. It's just helpful just to see tree. Again, designed for pragmatic purposes. And we use language like that in a very simple way. Um, But we're in a way um, oversimplifying the nature of experiences for pragmatic purposes. So we do that with our with our language. Um, in other, other parts of neuroscience, it's pointed out that our vision, in particular, makes things seem more steady and solid than they really are. There's the phenomenon I've mentioned once or twice called flicker fusion, where actually things are really, really flickering, but we stitch things together to make things seem solid. We do that with our vision. And I also mentioned how other species don't have the same way of making uh, objects seem constant. There's something, there's a phenomenon that's there with our retina in which the, the after image of what we see stays for a while. So it makes it look more constant than it is, actually. Interesting. Interestingly, in meditation, some of this can be deconstructed, I think, some of these tendencies. So if you look to the philosophy of the last few hundred years, there's been a lot of development to see the world as in large part constructed. I mentioned last time I was here how some of this started with the philosopher Kant at the end of the 18th century. He said, we actually don't really know how things are in themselves. He, used, he called this the things in themselves. But he said that we, um, what we actually do is we project certain uh, concepts onto the world that gives us a sense of constancy. You know, it gives us a sense of cause and effect, constancy, we use numbers and so forth. And he said that was that we kind of project onto the world. Other philosophers have talked about how we see everything through the lens of our interpretations. All of our experience comes through interpretations. You know, and that we... we, um, we uh, don't somehow see things accurately, but we see through cultural interpretations, sometimes personal interpretations. And again, in psychology, they develop the same thing. There's a whole area 
of psychology these days called constructivist psychology, which is the idea that everything is constructed. Again, for a lot of centuries um, in the modern West, it was thought that we simply see things as they are, that the, our perception sees things accurately and gives an image to the brain, and we actually tune into reality. Most psychologists, philosophers, sociologists, neuroscientists do not think that that's accurate these days, right? And that rather that we see through concepts and representations, which can vary. Again, helpful for getting about in the world, for having an agreed upon set of meanings in society, but not exactly seeing things as they are. So we'll come back with meditation uh, there's this deep aspiration, you know, this ancient human aspiration to see things accurately, to see things clearly. And Buddhists actually said 2,500 years ago that we see everything through the lens of concepts in our ordinary minds, and it's possible to do otherwise. So in a way, it's not a coincidence that there are very live dialogues between Buddhist practitioners and contemporary psychologists, neuroscientists, philosophers, and so forth. A very interesting example that some of you may know that, that was reported from the work of Oliver Sacks. And this has to do with the fact that we have to learn how to um, have these representations and constructions of the world, right? That when one is a very young child, as in our guest at the back, <laughs> one has not yet learned to conceptualize the world. If we just simply saw things as they are, children at birth would presumably see things as they are, right? But they have to learn how to develop concepts by which to see the world and how to have representations. And it takes, takes a, quite a few years. It actually uh, occurs. It's the, the development for children of being able to see the same world that we see occurs more or less when they develop in the development of the brain the capacity to use concepts and to represent things. Very interesting example came, uh, sort of illustrating this in another way, came from the work of Oliver Sacks. Some of you know his work. And he has a story called An Anthropologist on Mars, which is the story of a man named Virgil. Virgil was blind from birth. And there was a, an ability for Virgil, I, th I think he was, I don't know, 40s or 50s, to have an operation that would uh, bring back his vision. He had the operation. And did he see the world as we see it? No. No he saw what uh, the psychologist William James calls a buzzing, booming confusion. In fact, it was extremely painful for him to actually open up to all these visual phenomena, which were just chaotic, right, for him. They weren't ordered. There was chaos happening. And he chose, actually, he said, this is too painful. And he chose to have the rest of his life be with eyes closed. It's an interesting story, isn't it? This is what Oliver Sacks said. When we open our eyes each morning, it is upon a world we have spent a lifetime learning to see. We are not given the world. 
we make our world through incessant experience, categorization, memory, reconnection. When Virgil opened his eyes after being blind for 45 years, there were no visual memories to support a perception. He saw, but what he saw had no coherence. That sort of brings out what we're, what we're talking about. He never learned to uh, re-perceive the world. He wasn't willing to go there. <clears throat> so the problem with the constructions is that we don't know that there are constructions. We live in the constructed world that we have constructed collectively, but we don't realize that there are constructions. And sometimes this is, doesn't matter that much. <clears throat> it doesn't matter that much that we all um, <clears throat> came here using all sorts of constructions. We came to Spirit Rock using all sorts of ideas, concepts, constructions, and so forth. And it was helpful, right? So a lot of the constructions are quite helpful. Of course, some of the constructions are not so helpful as when we keep telling the same story that leads to the breakdown of relationships. Or when we do that at a national level, it leads to war or oppression, right? So some of our constructions are helpful, some of them not so helpful. But the meditative perspective is that we live in a constructed world and we don't realize that we've made all these constructions. And with meditation, particularly as it deepens, we're able to see things beyond the constructions. That's what I want to talk about the rest of the time. There's a term that's used that gets at this aspect of things uh, not being how they appear. And I mentioned it last time. It's a term that can be confusing. It's the term emptiness. It's said that everything is empty. I have proposed, and those of you who are for the first time, you're we're going into advanced teachings now. So I'll try to make it user-friendly, right? But the, um, the term is emptiness, and it's said that every phenomenon is empty. And one way to look at it in a very ordinary English is to say it means everything is constructed. Nothing is independent, independent and just there on its own. But everything rather is constructed or fabricated including ourselves. And again, when we look carefully at this, it actually can be a little bit disturbing, right? right? And so we'll come back at the end and say, we have to hold all this with compassion, right? It can be a little bit disturbing, especially if you look very deeply at it. There's a Zen term about the danger of falling into the pit of emptiness, <laughs> Right, because it can be a little... So if we think about it as construction, and if you get too deep, always stay in touch with teachers or community. Okay, But I don't think we're going to get there just in this session, so don't worry. <clears throat> and so if we think of emptiness as just meaning construction, um, being constructed, then we can, I think, start to understand it. it it's, it's the idea that we think we have a sense of self, but in a sense it's a construction, partly personal, partly social. And that is, there's much more of a sense of interdependence, causality, construction, fabrication. Same thing for a tree. Same thing for a chair. 
And when we, um, <clears throat> and we think we think that there is something solid there, largely when we live all the time in the world of concepts, when we live all the time in the world of constructions. And what is possible with our meditation in particular, in particular, is that we can learn how to see through the constructions and see things accurately. And this is not just taken as important so that we can see things as they, you know, uh, go beyond the appearance, appear, the usual appearances. You know, the, the fact of being caught in um, not seeing or believing that we're seeing things as they're appearing, but things are not really as they appear. I mentioned how some of our constructions are skillful and some of them are not. So a lot of the reason for this is that if we can really see things clearly and see through our constructions, we'll notice that a lot of our constructions are connected with suffering. That's the reason for this. It's not simply to have this cool experience of seeing things without concepts. It's because we have to know which of our concepts are getting us in trouble. And it's also taken that when we actually see beneath our concepts, we open up to the depths, as I was mentioning before, of awareness and love. So the purposes of what I'm saying today, which has its complications, is that when we see the way that things are not as they appear, and when we see more clearly, we both cut through suffering increasingly, and we also open up to the depths of wisdom, awareness, and love. So that's, that's the reason for why we're doing this. And um, so I'll just say a little bit more, then we'll open things up for, for discussion. So how do we... Um, let's see where I am. How do we practice this? One way is that we, learn, we do something very similar to what we did with the meditation. We learn to be with phenomena more at, at a um, level of more raw experience. So I learn how to be with sounds just, and it, again, it can be fun and very joyful. I learn to be with sounds much like we were doing in that, that practice short practice period. I learned to be with tastes. I learned to just be with thoughts and emotions and let them come and go. I learned to be with the river of experience, just watching what's in front of me and watching when I do have tendencies to solidify, to bring in concepts and so forth. So we can do the practice very much like we did before. You can do that at home. Just do it and we've, we've recorded the morning meditation. You can just listen to that um, it'll be available on Dharma Seed, um, you know, for no cost, and you can just download it and listen to it. The Buddha said that when you do this practice, this is one of his teachings, when you do this practice, the objects of the world which seem so solid start to be more seen as changing and less solid. He said everything starts to seem, he used this metaphor, like a ball of foam from, from the ancient text. Foam is like form, I'm sorry, sorry. Form, which means objects, 
bodies and so forth. Form is like a glob of foam. I, Donald, am but a glob of foam. Not what I typically put on my resume. (laughs) Form is like a glob of foam. Feeling, meaning sense of liking, disliking, pleasant, unpleasant. Feeling is like a bubble. Perception is like a mirage. Thoughts, emotions are like fabrications, like a banana tree. Consciousness is a magic trick. However you observe them, appropriately examine them, they're empty to whoever sees them appropriately. So he uses the word emptiness there. They're empty. And in a lot of um, later Buddhist tradition, um, as well as in other traditions, all sorts of metaphors are used for our ordinary ways of seeing. It's like a mirage. It's like an illusion. It's like an echo. It's like the reflection in the mirror and so forth. You find these in a lot of texts, these kind of metaphors. They're all inviting us to see if we can get to the level where we just see the flow of experience without adding conceptualization. It helps to have um, training in not just in mindfulness, but also in concentration, similar to what we did at the beginning of the sitting. Concentration helps let us cut through conceptualization, a very important factor. And so we often may do concentration practice can really help us to move away from a predominantly conceptual way of being with the world. And so that, that helps because it helps us, you know, helps us to not be so dominated by concepts, not be so uh, dominated by these, these understandings. As I mentioned, as we explore more deeply how things are not as they appear, it's very important to keep bringing in the dimension of compassion. You know, because again, it can be a little bit disorienting to realize this, you know. Oh, I'm living in a, a little bit illusory world. Hmm. 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 Should I still pay my taxes? <laughs> the date was extended. <laughs> you, know, should, you know, what about the things that are most important to me? So this isn't denying any of this, but it's just saying, again, there's skillful constructions and unskillful constructions, but this deep human aspiration to see things as they are, to see things more clearly, means that we have to also see how things are not exactly as they appear, and to hold it both, you know, increasingly with wisdom, but also with compassion. To realize that there are challenging aspects to this, you know, we're all just, a lot of us are just trying to get by, right? Now you're told things are not as they appear. Hmm. You know, how do I keep studying that and still pay my rent? Or grow up? <laughs> right, and so forth. So really to hold this for ourselves with some compassion that um, human life is complex and there are challenging aspects to it. You know, they're hard aspects when we actually have the intention to really look clearly at life. Some of it is hard to be with, right? Of course, the pain and the suffering. 
but also even seeing how we how our ordinary habitual mind puts us in a kind of bubble in which we things are not as they appear. And so compassion is really crucial. I'll end with a, a reading that is from the Tibetan tradition, which is about this bringing together of wisdom and compassion. In, in that tradition, wisdom is often this, the clear seeing of the constructed nature of things, in other words, emptiness. And so it'll be expressed in terms of bringing together emptiness and compassion. So here, here it is. <coughs> Excuse me. The teacher, Drom Tonpa, once asked Atisha what it was the ultimate of all teachings. The teacher responded, of all the teachings, the ultimate is emptiness of which compassion is the very essence. It is like a very powerful medicine, a panacea which can cure every disease in that world. And just like that very powerful medicine, realization of the truth of emptiness and the very nature of reality is the remedy for all the different negative emotions. In other words, all the reactions we have, the anger, it all comes because we don't quite, we get caught in the constructions. Again, it's complex, but that's one way of seeing it. The realization of the truth of emptiness or the nature of things being constructed, the nature of reality is the remedy for all the different negative emotions. So again, wisdom and compassion, uh, always uh, together. Again, the way to practice it is just to, for some time, just to do no differently than we did in the guided meditation. That's where we start. And you can have a lot of fun with it. Just be with the wind. Listen to the wind. Notice where you bring in concepts. Be with lunch. In a little while, for many of us. <laughs> be with lunch and just be with the taste and see where you bring in concepts or get distracted. Be with sounds. Listen to very simple music and see if you can just be with the flow and so forth. These are, these are the ways that we um, start to practice this. And again, helps also to develop concentration in our just being with the breath and so forth. So we have a little bit of time for any questions, reflections, uh, anything that came up. We'll use the microphone. Okay, please. Hi. Um, Hi. I'm just curious, and this is something I thought about a little bit before now, but if somebody was to walk in the room naked yeah. right now, what would you or the Buddha say in terms of them sort of constructing themselves through dress, which seems to be a very popular yeah. thing in the West, is to construct ourselves with labels and things yeah. that sort of you know define our self, so to speak. So if somebody was to walk in here naked, what would you or the Buddha do? 
Thank you for the question. It's a wonderful question, actually. Very creative question. And I'll thank you for, you know, implying that I might give the same response as the Buddha. <laughs> uh, and I'll have to speak for myself, of course, but, but I, can, I can maybe can go, you know, what, what's in alignment with the teachings. And again, it's remembering that some constructions are skillful and some constructions are not skillful. So probably my response would depend on um, the state of my mind and my sense of what the audience was ready to learn. And if I had, let's say I had a really, really receptive audience and we had been spending, let's say, you know, two weeks at a retreat studying all this stuff and people were really being trained to be just with the direct experience and watch the conceptual overlay, then I might actually maybe, I don't know if, you know, I'd arrange that sort of experience for people, but there could be a counterpart that wasn't, you know, socially, so socially on the edge, let's say, right? I could do something like that. Probably if it was this group, my guess is that... uh, uh, people might not be in a receptive place where they could really stay with the practice and hear that, so it might be skillful. It might think that the person was not well or you know, had uh, mental or emotional issues. And it might be hard, unless it was all staged, it might be hard for people actually to stay with it as a practice. So it probably, again, uh, a lot comes down to what's skillful recognizing that constructions are sometimes skillful, sometimes not skillful. So it would probably depend on the context. But it's a very interesting question though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Would the Buddha have said the same thing? I don't know. (laughs) Do you think it's possible that we can come to believe our own constructions? Yeah to the depth of almost, I guess my question is, could it become almost a literal cellular level of belief? Yeah, it goes, um, the, the beliefs we have about the nature of things uh, go very deeply, you know, at the, at the um, level of the brain and sort of the, you know, the culturally held beliefs are, are very deep. Uh, they can be modified. Again, the neuroscientists tell, talk about, tell us about neuroplasticity. And definitely, um, uh, so they're, they're, you know, like the thoughts about the solidity and the permanence of things are very, uh, are very deeply entrenched. But the meditative training can, uh, has the power to uh, cut through that belief. First, temporarily, and then over time, increasingly in a way which uh, gives us another way to see things. So they're not so deep that it means that uh, they're our fate or that you can't work through them. Again, it's not different than um, the pointers about neuroplasticity and something maybe of a uh, more psychologically based limiting belief like we sometimes look at here, maybe related to self-judgment, like a limiting belief that I'm not okay, which may have been there since one was five years old and maybe the person's now 50 
that limiting belief, which has dominated experience for 45 years and been repeated millions of times, can be cut through, sometimes remarkably quickly. Again, it's because of neuroplasticity. It's the same thing with these kind of uh, more uh, ordinary beliefs about the solidity of things. So it's, um, and that certainly matches my experience and that of other meditators. You know, that, that some, at first you get glimpses. And again, I think you've, uh, we all probably have had glimpses like when the mind gets really, really quiet, maybe in a beautiful natural setting, right? Gets really, really quiet. And then sometimes you see things like they're glimmering. Probably, how many of you had experiences where you're in the natural world, things look like they're kind of shining or glimmering? It's, it's actually, that's a natural, it's not different from what opens up in meditation. It's very similar and it can occur naturally. You know, or we're just when the mind stops for various reasons. Again, it could be because of being in the creative flow, because of love, uh, beauty, and so forth. That happens. And so uh, in those instances, we go out of our ordinary conditioning in very ordinary ways. So yeah, very possible. Very, very hopeful, basically, right? Yeah. I was on retreat recently and had an, had uh, worked through this issue of constructions and perception. Yeah. And over the course of days, came to realize that a perception that I had held for many, many, many years was not necessarily accurate. Yeah. When viewed from the perspective of another of another person, and so I had a moment of panic at realizing that if everything I'm thinking of all my ideas and perceptions are constructions. Where is truth? If everything that I think and believe is a construction, is there such a thing as truth in an absolute sense? Well, I... <laughs> okay. It's uh, three minutes before noon. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I'll start here. I think it's a really important question to navigate because... Again, in the current social realm, there's a kind of questioning of truth in a certain way. And um, in the Buddhist tradition, this question is usually answered, well, often answered by making a distinction between what what is typically called relative truth and absolute truth. And the, you know, the, when we, point to a way of seeing that's beyond conceptualization, that is opening up to a certain level of reality of human experience. And there, it's almost like, it's like a Zen teacher once said, whenever you open your mouth, you're wrong. <laughs> right? Whenever you conceptualize, you're missing the non-conceptual reality. Right? So in that sense, there's not conceptual truth. But there is conceptual truth in terms of uh, something relative. You know, maybe we, you know, we can have, um, you know, we can have evidence. You know, we can have, you know, all the usual guidelines for scientific evidence or the guidelines for, I don't know, journalistic evidence or what's happening somewhere. There is... um, there is a kind of relative truth. Does it totally match the nature of ultimate reality? No. 
right? Science doesn't, you know, somehow totally match the level of, re- of ultimate reality, but in terms of observing the regularities of phenomena, it does pretty well. And that still can be a kind of truth. Let's see, that's what's being challenged by some of the contemporary discourse, like fake news and all that, which is very problematic. They're not wrecking, you know, it's coming from other, for other reasons. They're not, they're not coming from deep insight into emptiness. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But um, coming from another place, which is back with the first theme that we looked at, which is seeing the world through very self-centered lenses. Right. But, but that's what's different. But the, the core answer would be that, there, uh, that this sense of things being empty doesn't rule out ordinary science, the regularities of experience, the fact that there are regularities of phenomena. And one can speak, you know, again, if we speak of relative truth, you know, the fact, you know, uh, I can look outside and say um, the, the sun is not shining, right? It's an it's a overcast day. That has a certain level of truth, right? If someone said the sun is shining really brilliantly now, we would say that's not true, right? And so we're qualifying it a bit by saying, you know, by almost like going to a metaphysical level and saying it doesn't match up with some ultimate reality because there are all these ways that there's construction. So construction doesn't mean arbitrariness. Maybe that, that's a clear way to say it. Yeah. Uh, construction doesn't mean arbitrariness and it doesn't mean that uh, anything goes in a sense. There still are regularities. They're in a constructed world, but they follow certain patterns. And one can uh, notice those patterns either accurately or inaccurately. Again, in the Buddhist tradition, this is called relative truth to distinguish it from the level of truth which is non-conceptual. Okay, so that's, that was actually... Uh, got at, uh, I think, a pretty decent response in a short time. So does that, does that make some sense? Yeah. So, but it, is this fascinating? Do you, yeah. So go out and explore it. Okay. Go out and explore it. I come back in two weeks. I don't know. The way it's lined up, we needed two weeks for this topic. One week might have been too little time. So Sylvia will be here next time. I'll tell her what we've talked about. And uh, explore it. Again, can explore it in a very simple way. First, see if you can just be with the flow of experience in meditation and in ordinary experience. See if you can be with the flow without bringing in constructions. And then notice where there are constructions. That's how we explore this theme. Even with the, you know, the at times complicated ways to understand it. It's very simple and can, we can make it simple in practice. Okay. So we'll finish. Let's just sit and be with whatever may have been helpful for you for a moment and set your intentions for the next two weeks.
And then as uh, we typically do at the end of a session, in a very traditional way, we offer the benefits of our time together to ourselves, to everyone in our lives, to everyone in this hall, and then beyond those circles of self and the group out into the world where we offer the benefits of our practice to all beings, known and unknown, always remembering that we are part of all beings. So thank you. Enjoy the practice. Take some notes. And I'll see you in two weeks. But you'll see each other next week. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.